podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 258. Today, we have a special guest, Curtis Pierce, author of Pacific on the Right, Two Pilots, One Airplane, A Lifetime of Memories. Uh, You know, Pacific on the Right is a book that chronicles the journey of Kurt Pierce from Arizona to Chile. His flight student, Miguel, bought a new plane, and instead of shipping it down to his home in Chile, the two of them made a flight together. It was a 6,760-mile journey through 11 countries, uh, and it left them under house arrest in Peru, landing in a restricted military base, crossing paths even with a fleeing president, and much more. We're going to get to that in a second, but a quick word from our sponsor. You know, if you enjoy this content and you really want to do something for those that are not flying or want to get additional ratings, I really highly recommend you're checking out our Patreon account and help us out. Even just $1 will help somebody move forward in, in their career. And how is that? Well, what we do is for every $10 we raise, we buy a scholarships guide and we give it away. And that's amazing because we have over $120 million in scholarships in that scholarships guide, and it makes a huge difference. It could be just somebody that wants to get their rating. Maybe they want to get a degree in instrument rating, their seaplane rating, etc. cetera. Uh, just by becoming a patron, uh, it really will help. Easy to find it, stuckmikeavcast.com slash patron. Really appreciate the help. Also, another thing as far as announcements, uh, Sun and Fun, even though things have changed a little bit, if you're listening to this before December in 2020, they're going to have this really cool holiday flying festival. Check it out at flysnf.org. And if you want to get your fill of Sun and Fun and you haven't had a chance, I also highly recommend clicking on Sun and Fun Radio. You'll hear people like myself and also the other co-hosts on this show, and especially somebody who does a ton of interviews, and that's Russ Wazleski. Hey, Russ. It's good to hear from you today. Glad you're on the show today. Oh, I am too, Carl. We have an author here we're going to interview, so I, I, you know I can't miss it. <laughs> I know you're excited about that, and I said to myself, you know, this is perfect and uh, to talk to somebody, an author, especially since you're, you are quite the reader in the group here and as the co-hosts go. Uh, so I am so excited to get moving on this. And uh, so let's move on right now to the cruise flight. Well, like I said, joining us today, we have somebody who's uh, had a special journey, really unique, uh, flying down all the way down to Chile with one of his students, and uh, that's Curtis Pierce. He's the author of Pacific on the Right, Two Pilots, One Airplane, A Lifetime of Memories. Hey, Curtis, welcome to the show. Hey, Carl. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, Russ. And, and you know, it, it was funny because... Uh, Russ, we, we were talking about this, how excited he was, and, and that's kind of like a show of it. He was just like, just I think he's he's one of those people that when he sees a book, he just salivates and starts d- jumping up and down. I And I can't wait to see hear his review. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I haven't kidding. read the book yet. <laughs> 
You know what's funny? I think Russ was saying beforehand, maybe if we get enough out of it, we won't have to. But no, we will. We're not gonna. We're not gonna give away everything in this. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Curtis, I've got a Moody to pay for. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Curtis, tell us a little bit about um, before we get started. Uh, this whole book about flying down to Chile with a student—it's definitely something that's different. But uh, but how about you? I mean, before we begin, just a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're a general aviation pilot, and uh, what other type of flying do you do? Uh, I'm a captain for a major airline. I fly the 737, and uh, I have a Mooney 205. It's my second airplane. I was uh, partners in a Cessna 180 for a long time, and then uh, broke up with the partner. It was amicable, uh, and then I uh, was without an airplane for a couple years, and for that entire time, I, I had this kind of argument in my head about how I didn't need another airplane. And I ended up losing that argument with myself. And so uh, <laughs> uh, another buddy of mine uh, had never owned a plane, uh, and he was interested. He's also a professional pilot, and we talked about the mission, and we talked about what we wanted, and and that led us to the Mooney. And we've had that for a couple of years now, and we absolutely love it. In fact, I, I flew it this morning. Uh, it's a fantastic airplane. Uh, but, uh, yeah, flying's my day job, and I've been in GA now. I got my private in 95. So uh, it's been a fairly long road, um, but I'm still having a great time flying. Uh, you know, I, I love hearing professional pilots that are GA pilots because they truly love aviation. I mean, I'm around it all the time. And uh, one of the things, before we start talking about the book, it, that I hear from people is, why do you go out and fly when you fly for work? And I don't know about you, Curtis, but it's two different worlds, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And, and to kind of further your point, when I was a flight instructor, I always used to tell students, I said, if you, if you want to do this as a career, here's something to think about. I know plenty of pilots who fly airplanes on their days off, but I don't know any accountants who do accounting on their days off. <laughs> that, was, that was always my pitch. Uh, but you're right. It is a completely different world. Um, in fact, I, I, uh, I did single pilot IFR for the first time in maybe 10 or 15 years and I was humbled. I had forgotten that uh, it's it's a completely different experience than a, you know, two pilot crew in a, you know, an air conditioned jet cruising around on a, you know, scheduled flight. It's a whole different thing. Yeah, you don't have someone reading in the checklist and doing the radios for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're you're your own non-flying pilot. That's awesome though to hear. It, it is a humbling experience. It's so cool. No matter how many hours you have, you really can learn. And, Absolutely. Uh, and it's a challenge, isn't it? It, it is. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I never get bored with flying, um, but I certainly find times where I try to challenge myself to learn new things, uh, whether it's a, a different airplane at work or if it's going somewhere new in the plane. Or like I said, you know, in the, in the Mooney, the, the 180 was just a, not just, but it was a, it was a grass strip airplane. It was a low and slow airplane. And the Mooney really is a, is a cross country machine. And so once I got checked out in it and was comfortable in it, I, I really wanted to kind of, kind of polish up my, my single pilot flying skills and work on, you know, a couple of approaches and, and get spun up on, uh, you know, the RNAV approaches, which have, you know, changed a lot since the last time I did IFR and smaller aircraft. So it's it's been a lot of fun, and uh, and I've learned, like you said, I, I I've learned a lot. I'm still learning. Uh, before we start talking about the book, one more thing. You said Mooney 205. There's uh, some folks that don't know much about Moonies, so just tell us real quickly what that's what type of airplane, the speeds, and uh, maybe the year of the aircraft. 
Uh, Carl, before you start, I want to break in here. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I wasn't familiar with that. I don't like you know what? I even to want to seem like even, I don't know. I'm here googling it as we. As <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even uh, even Mooney folks sometimes say it's a what. Um, so you know, Mooney's kind of the Taco Bell manufacturer, and so uh, you guys are probably familiar with the 201. That's kind of the ubiquitous sure. yeah. Mooney, uh, and then the 252. Uh, if you're familiar with that, that was the turbocharged airplane. And what Mooney did is they took the 252 body uh, and they put a 201 engine, not quite a non-turbocharged 252 because it's a, it's a completely different engine, but it has all the aerodynamic improvements that the 252 had. So it's a, it's a 201 that has the rounded windows, the modern windows, and uh, it's, it's probably five or six knots faster than a, than a 201. So I usually, and I, I love numbers. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, I, uh, I usually plan for, uh, down low, I plan for 160 knots at about uh, 15 gallons an hour. Uh, up high, and when I say up high, I mean 7,500 feet, 8,500 feet, uh, 155 knots on about 13 gallons an hour. Um, it holds 64 gallons, so it's a, it's a fantastic cross-country airplane. You, you can really go a long ways in a, in a short period of time. In fact, I, I just flew it to Maine and back. I uh, had vacation in September. And uh, all the way to Maine and back, not in a straight line or even close, and it was only 29 hours round trip. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a cross-country airplane. I, I love it. But it's a uh, – Sorry. Well, I was just wondering, someone who's thinking about upgrading to a Mooney and something a little faster, it, would you recommend getting a, a checkout and uh, it, it, like if they're doing the leap uh, say from a Cherokee to a 172? I would suggest that you, you go to your FBO. If you're already an owner, then maybe you step up and you hire an instructor. But if you're somebody who's renting and you want to look at it as a first airplane, I would, you know, go get your high-performance complex um uh, sign off and, and get some time if you can in an arrow or something. Uh, the Mooney, you know, I got a lot of hours and I still was humbled by the Mooney when I got checked out in it. It's, it's really hard to slow down and I, I would never dissuade anybody from it. Uh, but I would definitely go into it knowing that you're going to have to learn to fly the airplane. Um, but it's a fantastic airplane, but it, it, uh, getting it slowed down is tough. Even flaps out and gear out, uh, it's a challenge to get it down to approach speed. Um, and it floats like crazy. So if you're five knots fast, 10 knots fast, forget it. You know, unless you're landing on a 15,000 foot runway, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. All the things you just said are related by most Mooney owners. That's kind of why I want to talk about that, but we could talk all night about Moonies, yes. but we're here to talk about a book. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that is the, the book about flying down a Chile. And, uh, first of all, they, uh, I guess the question is why in the world did you fly a 172 from where you are in Phoenix all the way down to Santiago, Chile? You could have just put it in a crate and shipped it. Well, that's a, that's a good question. And, uh, I guess I'll answer it with a with a quick story. Uh, I was an instructor for several years. I loved instructing. I loved teaching. I had, I don't know, 40, 50 students that I did sign-offs for and then uh, countless other students that were, you know, checkouts and BFRs and, and so on. Um, but I, uh, especially my private students, um, I always tried to instill in them the idea that, that this is something that you, you're going to do forever. Um, you want to get that certificate, you want to keep it current. 
Uh, you want to find that joy of flying that the rest of us have already figured out. And one of the ways that I told them to kind of do that or suggested is, is that they avoid the trap of the hundred dollar hamburger. Um, in my time as an instructor, I saw so many students would, you know, get their, their private and they would fly for a couple of years and they'd go have breakfast, you know, an hour away, a couple hours away and whatever, and just do kind of, you know, little runs and day trips and stuff. And they got bored because, you know, after a while you've been to all the places that are an hour away and, you, you know, you've, you've already had, you know, every dish on the menu at your favorite airport restaurant and then you get bored. And so I, I always told my students, you know, um, you know, rent the plane overnight, go places, take your family, you know, make it, make it kind of a, a gateway to all these experiences that you, you can't have with the airlines or, or just by road tripping around. And uh, one of my students really took that to heart. And he bought a brand new Cessna 172 and uh, told me, hey, I, I want to buy this plane and I want to fly it to Chile after I, I pick it up. And I said, hey, man, you know, you can just take the wings off and put it in a container and, uh, you know, in a couple months it'll be waiting for you. And, and he laughed. He goes, well, aren't you the guy that told me I should, you know, go fly and have adventures and not just do the $100 hamburger? And I said, well, yeah. And so um, that was how we came to do it. He, he was my private student. He uh, bought the airplane. It delivered uh, maybe a month or two before he got his private. We spent uh, another month or two kind of getting the equipment we needed and flying off the first 50 hours uh, on the engine, you know, uh, to go through the break-in period so we could switch to regular oil. And uh, obviously, you know, we didn't want to be surprised by any bugs or any, any issues with the airplane that we might find. Uh, we didn't have any. And so uh, we, uh, we did that 50 hours, and then we, uh, on a very cold November morning in Scottsdale, Arizona, we, uh, we took off for Santiago. Wow. And that's, uh, but there was a little bit of planning ahead, though, before you just jumped on the plane and went. So uh, tell us a little bit about that as far as, uh, as going down there, because I'm, I'm sure it took you know, like a month or half a month or whatever to get down there. Um, how did you go about, especially with a brand new student, planning a trip through multiple countries, different types of airspace down to Chile? Well, uh, it started out with him saying, how do we do this? And, and me saying, you know, I've never actually flown out of the country before. Um, the, my student, who became my very good friend, and we're, we're still very good friends to this day, more than 20 years later, um, he was a very successful businessman from Chile, uh, had businesses all over Central and South America, um, was very well versed in business and in traveling and kind of negotiating uh, the red tape of, of doing business in other countries. And so he, he didn't know the aviation part of it, but, but he was already adept at, at kind of weaving his way through bureaucracy. Um, and what I brought to the table was obviously I had, I probably had a thousand or 1500 hours at that time. So I'd been flying for a while. Um, and so I kind of knew the airplane part of it, but the actual planning basically started with me saying, Hey, let's just call a planning company and be done with it. And they'll just send us everything and we'll send them a check. Well, it turns out that there's not a single planning company that will touch a piston airplane. They, they only do jets. And so uh, we basically did it on our own. We, we found an FBO in Chile that was willing to help us a little bit um, while we were on the road. Uh, this was, you know, cell phones were around, but not too many people had them. And certainly international plans were not a thing. And so we kind of needed somebody that in real time could assist us. But uh, for the most part, we, we 
searched out all the permits ourselves. It just was basically, you know, cold calling the various agencies and in, in all the different countries we planned to land in and, and just got the permits. Um, we had email. And so most of it was done by email. I spoke a little bit of Spanish, uh, but it wasn't great. And so he did most of the communicating and I did kind of the logistical planning of, okay, we're in a 172, we can go about four hours. And so we, we kind of mapped out our stops and figured out, you know, what would be a technical stop where we would just get gas and keep on going. And then what stops would be overnight stops where we would have to, you know, clear customs and have permission to stay on, on an overnight basis. And so uh, it, it, it took about six months. Um, I kept a journal and I still have all my notes you know, phone numbers and email addresses for all these different agencies, and when I contacted who, and uh, kept track of all the uh, of all the permits as they came in. Uh, but we we kind of had a date set. We wanted to hit the weather so that it wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold on either end, because um, obviously the seasons are opposite in, in South America. So we had to kind of thread the needle weather wise. Uh, so we started pretty early, uh, but by probably late September, early October, we we had everything lined up that we needed. Well, I'm looking at the uh, at the map here. Yeah, I had to kind of refresh my geography, I guess. <laughs> but uh, just just looking at, at the route you'd have to take. I mean, this is a 172. You're not going to fly over the Pacific Ocean, right? You know, right. straight there. Right. So, I mean, just you know, down obviously from Arizona through Mexico and uh, Guatemala and Nicaragua. I mean, there's probably got to be 15 countries or something along the way. It was eleven countries. Eleven. Okay. 11 well, countries. I, I, it was yeah. a fair guess, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good that, guess. Yeah. And and being as a one seventy two, you probably had to stop in most of them, I'd imagine. Uh, we did. At least for yeah. Cool, right. Yeah. 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 We so, didn't use we didn't use bladder tanks. The airplane was completely unmodified. So, like I said, you know that airplane. Uh, it was a sixty gallon usable airplane, or no, a fifty. Sorry, a fifty gallon usable airplane. So. Burning ten gallons an hour meant four hours, and we we needed a place to land. So we we based uh, all of our flight planning on that was that we we couldn't go any more than four hours. And then of course because of the mountains, uh, especially as you round the corner uh, down Ecuador and, and into Peru, uh, we were right over the water, uh, right over the coastline almost the entire time. The, the Andes Mountains pretty much go right into the ocean. And so there wow. were places where there wasn't even a coastline. It was just a mountain and then the surf. So, yeah. So you must, uh, just the, like you mentioned a little bit of the coordination, but that, that's, that's gotta be what just took so much of that time with 11 different countries and, and different systems and, and different way, forms they wanted to see and, and all that kind of thing. It was, it's, it's, there's a little bit of standardization between the countries because they all, for the most part, uh, follow the the ICAO uh, flight plans and and notifications and so on. So that part wasn't too bad, um, but uh, things didn't always go the way we expected. Um, a lot of countries they they'll give you a flight permit that is a kind of a window of days, uh, but if you if you try to come in early, they they'll say no. Or if you if you're getting towards the end of that window and you're still there, you haven't gone through yet, they uh, some countries can be a little bit cranky about um, about letting you stay or letting you transit outside of that permit window. And then, of course, uh, our our real problem came with uh, when we went through Peru, and and that takes up uh, a couple chapters in the book. Um, but we actually ended up under house arrest in Peru. 
Um, we had gotten all the correct permits. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we got all the correct permits and, and everything was fine. Um, but the, the president of Peru had defected, uh, after we had left for the trip, but before we had gotten to Chile or before we got into Peru, excuse me. And so by the time we landed in Peru, the government there was, was rather unstable. And so we, we basically landed and the, uh, the AV, they call it the minister, the ministry of aviation there. Uh, basically the ministry said to us, well, yeah, you've got a permit, but it was issued under this old leadership and, and they're not the boss anymore. So we're, we're basically tearing it up and you can start over. So you're not supposed to be here. And so they, uh, they gave us the name of a hotel. They said, go stay there. It was a Friday afternoon. And uh, they said, we're, we're going home and you're going to stay in the hotel and you can come back on Monday and plead your case. And so we, we did that. And out the window of that hotel, I, the, uh, one of the government buildings was across the street. I saw protests and people carrying signs and the police. And so it was a, it was a very uncertain uh, time in that trip. We also ended up uh, in Colombia on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, Colombia was supposed to be uh, what's called a technical stop, which again is uh, you don't need a visa. You don't even really need a permit other than you're notifying the country that you're, you're going to be transiting. But a technical stop is that the pilots land the airplane. They stay near the airplane. They've put in fuel. They file a flight plan. They get back in the plane. They keep on going. Well, we land in uh, Colombia in, in, in a city called Buenaventura. And find out that even though Buenaventura told us, oh, yeah, we've got fuel. Well, they didn't have fuel. And we landed with the uh, maybe just 45 minutes worth of fuel in the tanks. And so uh, we couldn't take off again. There wasn't any other airport to reach. And so we were stuck there overnight uh, with no visa, no permit, no nothing. Um, And that was also a very interesting time. Fortunately for us, I guess. Colombia was an extremely unstable uh, country at the time. And so even though we weren't supposed to be there, there wasn't really anybody to notice. And so we we ended up spending the night there. I had the uh, interesting and unforgettable experience of carrying an M60 on my lap uh, as we drove in the back of a Jeep that gave us a ride from the airport to to the town so we could stay in a hotel for the night. Um, I remember going down this little one lane road in the jungle uh, in the back of this Jeep with a, with a gun on my lap. And I'm thinking, I, how did I get here? <laughs> what did I talk myself into? It was uh, obviously I made it and here we are, but uh, there were, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. It sounds so calm about it. it uh, at any point, did you really worry about your safety? I did. Uh, that day in Colombia, uh, it was. It happened to be Thanksgiving Day. Um, I remember kind of thinking, "This is almost. Uh, uh, it's almost an out of body. Like I'm. I'm watching a movie of this pilot who's in in per, or, uh, in Colombia. You know, driving down this jungle road with a gun in his lap. Um, it, it was. It was kind of a detached experience, uh, almost scientific. But I, I definitely thought to myself, yeah, this is, this is a lot more danger than I, I expected. Um, Peru is the same way. Um, and, and I, I do discuss this in the book, but Peru had a, uh, a shoot down policy, um, that was in effect at the time, uh, basically allowed the Peruvian government, uh, and the Peruvian air force to 
shoot down any airplanes that they considered suspicious. Um, and so there were there were times, especially after we had resolved the issue with the Minister of Aviation in Peru and allowed clearance to leave, uh, we left Lima. We got within maybe 15 or 20 minutes of the border with Chile and thought, oh, we're home free. You know, all the, all the trouble has passed us. And then the air traffic controller, uh, the Peruvian air traffic controller comes on and says, hey, there's there's another problem with your paperwork and we want you to land. Uh, we don't want you to cross the border into Chile. And uh, knowing about the shoot down policy, I remember thinking, like, can we get across the border in time before, you know, somebody shows up, an airplane shows up that has a gun. Um, we ended up turning off the lights in the plane. We, we pushed the power up to full, which, of course, in a 172 meant we went from, you know, 110 <laughs> knots to 115 knots. So that was mostly just uh, for comfort on our sake. But uh, uh, but we made it across the border. We, we basically just told the Peruvian controller, no, thanks. We're going to keep on going. And they argued with us for a while. And we ended up just we looked up the frequency for the Chilean controller and the plates. And we just called him and we said, hey, we we're just calling you early. We're, you're not going to get a handoff from Peru and uh, Chile and Peru famously hate each other. And so the Chilean guy was more than happy to just uh, take us uh, to give us permission to cross the border, even without the Peruvian handoff. And so he gave us a big heartwarming welcome to Chile. <laughs> you're, you're clear for the approach into the Arica, which is the, the border town that we were landing in. So uh, yeah, there there were there was that moment, and then the other ones I mentioned. There there were there were a few times where I thought, wow, this is this is maybe an unacceptable amount of danger that we kind of found ourselves in. Yeah, that worked to your favor, though, having uh, the the animosity between those countries, and uh, it just sounds like you've worked yourself out of so many sticky situations. Uh, you know, while I'm listening to you, you know, we talk to people about flying to the Bahamas or whatever from Florida, and uh, that's that's a challenge, yeah. But compared to this, wow! I mean, you could basically start a whole firm of teaching people how to fly from the u.s through all these countries um and maybe do a tour uh with people that it really is cool that you did this and i'm wondering do you have that all you, know, you talk about notes is that available for people to to maybe or do you share that at all uh you know what i honestly that had not occurred to me until this point in time um we uh we're in the process of setting up a website and a facebook page and so i think i i really appreciate the suggestion that's that's something i'm gonna have to put on our to-do list um we have several hundred pictures that we had taken um i still had an old film camera at the time um my uh my student and friend uh he had a digital an early digital camera and so he took you know a couple a couple sd cards worth of uh photographs so i we have photographs notes um, I still have some ephemera, some flight plans, and some different things that we had collected along the way. Um, we had a whole box full of charts. Uh, the big uh, Department of Defense uh, international uh, flight planning VFR charts, which are huge charts. They're like um, maybe the size of a, a small dining room table. But, of course, we had all of the Americas. It was like um, it was a box that was like the size of a case of wine that we had all these charts in. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I appreciate the suggestion. I think that's something we should probably make available to the folks that read the book that want to find more. And, uh, uh, there's actually something about the book is that we, we really agonized about how much sort of pilot talk to put in the book 
because I, I wanted, I knew that pilots would be interested in the book, but I also didn't want to alienate, you know, kind of a non-flying audience who would, you know, have all this pilot speak and then sort of be puzzled by it. And so uh, I think if we were able to make uh, those extra things available, that would, that would really kind of be a boost uh, to the, to the pilot audience for sure. Well, if we could, since you kind of started down that road already, as far as, you know, what to put into the book, I mean, I was just kind of curious, you went on this great trip, it was a lot of planning. Uh, how do you, how do you work your ideas and all these you know, fascinating stories into a book? What's kind of the process you went through to, uh, to, you know, to get it down on paper? Well, uh, I, I will give upfront, I'll give massive credit to my mother who is a uh, retired educator. Uh, so she, uh, she actually has a, a doctorate in education. So she is public published in the academic sense. And so she had a, a very good understanding of uh, how to put a book together, how to write an outline, how to, you know, kind of take each point in the outline and turn it into, uh, you know, um, a dialogue, uh, a narrative, and then kind of take that and structure it into chapters and, and make it kind of more readable. And so, um, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, uh, before we started that, um, you know, after almost immediately after we got back from this trip and I would tell people the story and they'd say, oh man, you got to write a book. And I, I'm not an author and I, it was not something that I ever thought I would be. Um, and so fast forward literally 16 years and my mother retired and she said, you know, I need a retirement project and, and you've got a book that you should have written 15 years ago. Uh, if, if you want to team up, we, we can. And so she had the time and, and I had the whole story in my head. And so the deal we made was that I gave her all of my physical uh, collection of things, the photos, all the notes, my journal that I kept. And then um, over the period of about three months, uh, just kind of days off uh, and free time. Whenever I had free time, I, I had uh, the chronology of my trip um, and I would make uh, audio recordings where I would tell the stories and, and just do that. Okay, we woke up on November 10th and now it is the day that we flew from here to there. And, and I'm going to tell you all the things that happened in that day and every everything I can remember, the stories, things that people talked to me about and problems that we had. And so uh, she took those recordings uh, and then started writing, you know, kind of a, a very rough draft. And then she would give me the rough draft and I would, you know, kind of tweak some things. And and, uh, and then uh, from there, uh, we had kind of a working novel uh, maybe 12 months ago and went into the process of editing uh, both for content and then just for, for grammar and typos and so on. Um and then uh, we uh, we uh, submitted to the publisher. They came back with some suggestions, uh, and that process uh, took about ninety days. Um, but what was amazing is is how quickly once we kind of gave the thumbs up to the publisher, it was like all of a sudden, you know, after uh, I mean four years of of this process, it was like two weeks after we said okay, we had a we had a box of books that showed up at the house. It was. It was, uh, that was kind of the most exciting moment of all. And, uh, certainly we could have written it faster, but it was, uh, it was a retirement project for my mom. For me, it was, you know, very much a, a nights and weekends kind of thing. And so we, we definitely took our time. It was, it was slow and steady. Did you find there was, there was a lot of stuff that you just 
cut out of it, didn't include, uh, decided, ah, eh, that's not very interesting, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing? Well, you know, it was uh, it was uh, three hours of flying, and and so obviously <laughs> sure. there there are sensational parts, uh, and I mentioned a few, uh, and, and there were there were plenty of of absolute just fun moments, uh, moments that uh, will just be lifetime memories that were just fantastic, uh, but obviously there were days where it was like get in, put your seatbelt on, and. And we flew two four-hour legs and landed, and and nothing happened. And there were no machine guns or house arrests or anything crazy. Uh, but uh, no, the, the the book is a is a, a complete picture um, of the trip. The book actually uh, it kind of starts with you know kind of a a cliffhanger moment, and then uh, leads into uh, the year prior when I actually uh, met my friend and my student and friend Miguel. And, and the process of, of him kind of deciding, yeah, I want to buy this plane and him saying, you know, hey, I, I can't do this by myself. I, I need someone with an experience. Would you come with me? And then, uh, of course, the run up to actually leaving for the trip. And then uh, and then the book kind of ends with some reflections, you know, that I've made in the present day about the trip and what it's taught me as a person. Um, you mentioned earlier about, you know, being kind of cool and calm about it and something that that trip really it kind of changed my it didn't kind of it, it actually changed my life where i i found myself in these situations where there was no call a friend you know there was no go around where you could just go try again you know in the moment we were in these foreign countries and we were in trouble and we had to think on our feet and, and solve problems there was not the luxury of panic or, or just relying on someone else to kind of dig us out of a hole so to speak and that those experiences and, and learning that lesson has stuck with me since then uh whether it's flying or in business or, or or challenges my family has faced over the years uh i've, I've always kind of gone back to that trip and thought well okay i'm gonna i'm gonna figure out a way to solve this problem because really there's there's no other option you know we, it's not like we can just give up and walk away from it so it's it's uh it was quite an experience if nothing else, for someone to read this is to learn from that and learn to actually, you know, think and during these really difficult times and uh, think logically. And th- these are great examples with a positive outcome. And I love I love that story. Um, but you know, Curtis, as you're talking, one thing that I, I keep in my head trying to envision what you saw, and uh, you said you took pictures. Is there any way that you have an ability to show those pictures to us? I know you said something about a Facebook page, and uh, and also maybe you could describe one of the like the really coolest things that you got to see. Uh, the book actually has in the center. It has I think fifteen or sixteen pictures, um, and I would say they're kind of a combination of the best of the best as well as. Um, you know, story, uh, pictures that kind of helped along the narrative. Um, a few things that that really kind of stick out in my memory. Uh, the first one is is actually before we took the trip, uh, when we flew to Independence, Kansas, to to pick up the airplane from the factory, and uh, you know, with uh, with obviously a, an expensive purchase like that, you, you get some perks, and one of the perks was we got a tour. And I remember being amazed at how when we, we kind of started at the beginning of the assembly line and worked our way down and the assembly line is in steps and it's not like a, you know, like a moving assembly line, like where they build cars. It's, you know, it's just a, a concrete floor in a, in a big giant hangar. And 
and the first step, it just looks like the, the nuts and bolts section of a hardware store. Um, there's huge bins full of, you know, screws and, and nuts and bolts and rivets and a whole big stack of, of uh, aluminum sheet. And the next step is an airframe. And I remember just being amazed by that. It just was the most incredible thing to see because every step after that is like, okay, we, we put the tires on, we hang the engine, you know, here's the prop, we put the seats in. Uh, but to see that first step where an, where an airplane is just kind of born out of, out of sheet metal and some screws was just, just an amazing thing to see. Um, but in terms of the trip, uh, you know, the most amazing thing that I saw, and I remember being kind of a profound mo- moment, was we were climbing. We, we probably flew the whole trip at maybe three or four thousand feet, uh, but we had we'd crossed over the border of southern Mexico into Guatemala, and there were two things that really struck me. The first is that you know Guatemala is, is very mountainous, and it's a very small country, and farmers there will use every square inch of land that they can find. And so he found these kind of irregularly shaped farmer's fields that literally went up and down the side of the mountain, you know, up to including the peak, uh, which was just amazing. Um, But the countries in Central America are very small. And so, you know, in one two or three hour leg, I think we we flew over four or five countries, you know, after leaving Mexico uh, and then later on landing, um, I think in... El Salvador that day. Uh, but it struck me that all these countries have their own identity and their own priorities and, and, and a very strong national sense of, you know, this is us and that's them. And this is our border and across the border is somebody else. But from the air, it, it all just looks the same. And I remember thinking uh, it's almost silly that we have these kind of rigid borders and, and, you know, this language is spoken on this side and that language is spoken on the other side when in the end from the air, it all just looks the same. I mean, you know, if you took up a, you know, just a a person off the street and had them look out the window, there's no way they could say that's Nicaragua or or that's Guatemala or that's where Costa Rica starts and that's where Panama ends. I mean, it it all just kind of blends in. That was a very, very profound thing to see. Yeah, we do as humans carve these lines that are not set in the earth, but uh, it, it really is, it's interesting. It's I, I, That's one thing I love about aviation. Um, but this really has changed your life, this trip. Uh, and we, we talk about you, but there's the other person, Miguel, who is involved. How If you were to like put words in his mouth, how do you feel that it changed him? Well, that's a really good question, and, and I, I guess I should give credit to him uh, over, over all else, because if it was not for him, this trip would have never happened. Um, you know, he walked into that flight school. Uh, he was in his 40s, late 40s at the time, and he told me that, you know, like a lot of us, he, he had the dream to fly when he was young, uh, but it, he never had the time. He didn't have the money. And, and, and those two things finally intersected. And, and he wanted to fulfill that dream. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody in the world that could say that they had fulfilled that dream to, to such a high uh, level, I guess, because, you know, this guy, he got his private, I think he had 55 hours and then maybe got another, you know, 10 or 12 and then, you know, embarked on this journey. Um he, he had always been a person that, that had kind of very far horizons in terms of 
what he achieved in his life uh, from a business standpoint is a very successful businessman. Um, but I know that in flying that trip, I think made him really realize the opportunities that were available in aviation. And, uh, it's not related to this trip, but it's something that happened several years later. Um, but he actually, after flying that airplane to Chile and got really immersed in the, the, the very small GA world that exists in Chile and realized that there was a niche that needed to be filled. And so, um, on the basis of his experience, he ended up opening an FBO, uh, which exists to this day. They have uh, a flight school, simulators. Uh, they do ab initio programs. They also have a charter department. They've got uh, air ambulance aircraft. They have some light jets. Uh, they've had turboprops uh, do various uh, contract work for businesses in Chile. And so um, he went from a 172 uh, several years later, bought a CJ-1 that we flew together for a long time. Uh, a couple years after that, he upgraded to a Lear 40. We flew that together for several years. Um, but I, I can tell you uh, that it was it was a very exciting moment for me. Uh, we had been flying the Lear together for a while and uh, flew a trip down to Santiago, landed in Santiago. And I knew that he had this FBO, but I'd never seen it with my own eyes. And we taxi up onto the ramp and shut the engines down and I get out and I'm looking at this big hangar with all these airplanes in it. And there's, you know, rampers walking around and there's the charter coordinator standing there. And, and he looks at me and he says, Senor Curtis, this is all because of you. And it was uh, an incredibly proud moment to know that I, I played some small part in, in kind of sending him down this road toward, towards, you know, be, being so immersed in, in the world of aviation. It was very exciting. But yeah, I think if he was here, that's probably what he would say. He would say, you know, this this was a one small step that led me down this uh, kind of enormous adventure in aviation. Starting with one flight instructor yourself, it's amazing the impact that you had on one student. And, uh, and there's instructors listening now uh, that can have that type of impact by just kind of stepping outside that comfort zone like you did and said, hey, Let's go ahead and, and, and do this trip. And that was suggested by, by your student. Uh, so really, it's, it's an incredible journey, one that is very formative for both of you, uh, both the instructor and the student. And, Absolutely. <laughs> and has changed a lot of lives. And hats off to you for doing that. Uh, but just an incredible journey. I mean, from, from starting off with this aircraft that's, like you said, born out of sheet metal and screws to experiencing these countries that are born from eruptions and accretive lava flows and earthquakes and amazing sights, you know, you, you probably wouldn't have that opportunity without aviation. And that's one of the blessings of being involved in this, in this world of aviation. And the, it is a blessing to have someone like yourself put this on paper and share this story. And, and we really, really appreciate you doing that. Well, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about it. So as far as the book is concerned, let's talk uh, about when it comes out and what type of formats we can find it. We'll have links in the show notes, by the way, if you're listening. We'll make sure that, that you can find it. Where do most people find the book? Uh, the easiest way to find it, of course, everybody you know has Amazon. Uh, it will be available on Amazon uh, starting October 26th. Uh, on ebook as well as uh, on paperback. Uh, there's a hardback that's in process, and I don't know if it's going to be available at, at the same date or a, a later date. 
Um, but you'll find those details on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, Goodreads. Uh, there's a book baby has a store. You can buy it directly from them. And I, I believe it's available right now, uh, from the book baby store. And if you just Google book baby store, it will come up. Um, they offer, uh, an ebook that's in all the standard formats as well as, uh, the, uh, the print version. Uh, but obviously Amazon is, you know, the, uh, the easy, easiest one. And there's a, uh, there's an audible that's in production. In fact, I was, I was working on it today. Um, I think that will probably be available sometime in November, uh, but it's in production right now. Well, I can't wait to hear the audible version, by the way. Uh, just listen to you speak. You're a great speaker, and I, I'll probably wind up listening to it in the car. I do both. I like to read, and also um, I like to uh, actually read the, the listen to the, the book on tape, especially if it's uh, read by the author. Uh, but, uh, Russ, what do you think? Are you going to do a review of this book for us? <laughs> yeah, of course I'm going to do a review of this uh, when it comes out. I mean, is there any question? Of course I'm going to have to. That's, that's like my job on the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> so, of course, yeah. But uh, yeah, It's my first get, book, Russ. Please be kind. Don't worry about that. I'm sure it's good. I just have one question, though, really. I mean, you know, so when does the movie come out? And who do you want to play you, Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks? Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I guess uh, they've both played pilots, so uh, right? Yeah, right. yeah. I don't know. That's uh, that's <laughs> you'll, you'll, a, have, a, you'll have to put some thought into that one. Yeah. So I, I have to say that 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 has been a, a, a kind of an in joke with my family. Is is anytime we talk about you know like. Uh, we always say, oh, we're going to pay for that with the movie rights. You know, like we're going to buy a twin Cessna and we're going to pay for that with the movie rights. Or when we get our boat, we'll, you know, we'll just we'll just pay for that with the movie rights. So uh, so cross your fingers on that. Well, we'll definitely keep our, our fingers crossed on that one, and uh, can't wait to. That would be a great movie, by the way. I'd lo- I would I would definitely watch that. Uh, I would love to have someone just go fly along, uh, you know, along the way and just you know take pictures of the exact route that you did that would be totally cool that would be really cool that would be cool (laughs) but uh anyway this has been great having you on terrific uh for those listeners make sure you check the show notes and uh and you can find it online very easily it's stuck my gavcast episode 258 uh again with curtis pierce of uh the book pacific on the right two pilots one airplane and a lifetime of memories, and it's going to be a lifetime of memories for us because we're going to read it and we're going to enjoy it. And I'm sure a lot of those images and experiences will be ingrained in us. And that's what we appreciate so much about you, Curtis, and bringing that story to us because I'm sure it'll change our lives. And thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I, re- I really had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Well, folks, if you're listening right now, like I said in the show notes, you can find all that information as far as we can find the book. Also, if you appreciate the content we bring to you, please think about becoming a patron. Just $1 will make a difference in someone's life because when we reach $10, we give away a scholarships guide, and that's worth over $120 million in that guide. So uh, it may make a difference in someone's life by getting an additional rating, being able to take a written exam, uh, or maybe getting a type rating or possibly a degree. Uh, we really appreciate you all listening. And one thing I do encourage you to do is to reach out and look in Amazon, check out the book, and and try to kind of expand your life by reading aviation books. I know it's tough for us to fly right now, but but try to do something like that. Try to you know expand your life by not just listening. Get involved and and try to do something 
to become that pilot that you want to be, to learn from other people's experiences, but, but really reach out and, and get involved in your flying life. We'll talk to you next episode, folks. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.